This episode is brought to you by Charcoal Book Club, the only book of the month club dedicated exclusively to the photo book. If you haven't heard yet, there's still 30 days to submit your work for the third annual Chico Hot Springs Portfolio Review and Publishing Prize. Submit now through December 10th for a chance to be one of the 45 artists invited to spend the week in Montana with Todd Heido, Mark Steinmetz, Andrea Modica, Alex Webb, Rebecca Norris Webb, and 11 of the most respected publishers and organizations in contemporary photography. Selected attendees will take part in portfolio reviews, listen to artist lectures, panel discussions, and commune over food and drink in the saloon in Hot Springs. Submit now by going to charcoalbookclub.com and click on Portfolio Review in the top left-hand corner of the webpage. I'm Jordan Weitzman, and you're listening to Magic Hour. I think I first came across Jack Woody's name after buying the Dwayne Michaels book album years ago. I remember thinking that it was so elegant, so beautifully printed and laid out, that I was curious who was behind it. I remember even mentioning that book when I first met Dwayne, and he told me that there was even this hotel in San Francisco who bought that book, cut out and framed the prints they were so gorgeous. That revere process that Jack Woody tracked down and began to use became one of the signatures of his imprints, 12 Trees and Twin Palms. The name of his first press comes from his grandmother, Helen Twelve Trees, a Hollywood movie star in the 1930s. After graduating high school, he wanted to go see his grandmother's star on Hollywood Boulevard, so he hitchhiked to L.A. He ended up getting a job at a used bookstore called Pickwick, and after a year there, he moved to Antiquarian Books, which is where he met David Hockney and his gallerist Nicholas Wilder, who walked in one day. It was that meeting that eventually got him a job at Nicholas Wilder's gallery. And in that job, he ended up showing a portfolio of photographs by Dwayne Michaels called Homage to Cavafy. Dwayne told him about George Platt Lines' work, and that ended up becoming the first book of photos that he published. We'll get into that in this episode. Since that book, he's published over 150 art books by the likes of Christopher Isherwood, Herbert List, George Platt Lines, Diane Keaton, Allen Ginsberg, Lee Sarfati, Mallory Martyr, Mark Morrisrill, Eggleston, Clemente, Michaels, Maplethorpe, Davidson. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. When he started publishing art, and more specifically photo books in the 1980s, no one else was doing it other than a couple small presses. He essentially invented a form that his imprint would become known for. I was so excited to go and meet him. I mean, the Rolodex of people that he's known and worked with in his life It's like an encyclopedia of both gay and photo history. And yet, when I went over to his house that he designed and built in the hills of Santa Fe, New Mexico, I met the most humble and charming man, soft-spoken, unpretentious, but also willing to talk about his life and work if you expressed an interest. All right, here's our conversation. I really hope you enjoy it. We go back to the beginning and talk about how he got started with it all. I didn't really intend to be a publisher of photography books. I did intend to be a publisher, and the first book I did was October, which was the Christopher Isherwood book, and um, with Don Bacardi, his lover, doing. He was an artist, so he did a portrait every day of some, you know, L.A. person, and I did, and Chris wrote an, en- an entry in his diary, and it was for the month of October, I believe, 1977 or 78. And um, that was the first, that was going to be the first book in the series. And <clears throat> the second book in the series was going to be Joan Didion and David Hockney. Hmm. 
David had agreed and Joan had not. But while that was going on and while that was in process, I had applied for a grant to the National Endowment for the Arts to do a book on George Platt Lyons. And I had found out about George Platt Lyons from Dwayne Michaels when he had come to L.A. And I was showing his Cavafy series, and he came to the gallery, and we met and had a drink and talked, and he mentioned George Platt Lyons at that time. And um, it was sort of... I don't know if I really, since I didn't have, I didn't relate to any of the images, I'd never heard of George Platt Lyons. Um, I didn't think much of it, and then a few months later, um, a gallery dealer in San Francisco called me and said that there was a, an old man had come into the gallery and um, had an album of about 50 male nudes that were from the 30s and 40s, and, and uh, he said they were kind of extraordinary. That was Sam Stewart. Yeah, Sam Stewart was the was the old man. Sam Stewart was the, the old, old man. tattoo artist. Right. And uh, but this guy didn't really know who Sam was at the time. He was just an old man to the dealer. Stephen Wirtz was the dealer in San Francisco, and um, uh, he uh, called me and and I said, oh, well, "I'm going to come up and look." And so, so you went up to go meet Sam. I Stewart? went to meet. I call. He I get. He got Sam's number. And so I called Sam and said, you know, I was interested. And um, I went up to San Francisco and went to Berkeley, where he had a small bungalow behind somebody's house in Berkeley. And he pulled out a three-ring binder, and all these images were in it. And I asked him, I said, you know, how did you end up with these? And he said, well, I had met George Platt Lyons, and there was a porter on the train this beautiful man this beautiful black man and I'd sent him to George and George loved him and he was a great model for him and you know we just we became friends over a period of time and I was in New York once and at his studio and he said oh why don't you you know pick a couple of pictures and so I picked these I said you pick 40 pictures (laughs) he said that's what George said he was and I said, um, yeah, and, but he gave them to you. I think he was so surprised, he just let me have them. And so here they are. So Sam Stewart was a fascinating character. He was a, he was a writer, he was a poet, he was a, a teacher. He then became uh, a uh, tattoo artist, the tattoo artist for the Hells, the official tattoo artist for the Hells Angels. Right. And, and a pornographer, essentially. And he was friend. He worked really closely with Alfred Kinsey, and I mean, just like fascinating history. He met George Ly- George Platt Lyons and his and his crew in it was in the forties or the fifties, and it was yeah, it was in the forties. Hmm. And basically, um, you know, they, it was it was that whole gay underworld, but you know, it was incredibly sophisticated and very smart people living these, you know, kind of shadow lives from you know who they were to most of the world, and it was kind of remarkable. You know, George Platt Lyons, you know, was doing all this fashion work, and, and you know, who knew that, I mean, really, the most interesting thing he was doing were, you know, all these nudes and portraits of his circle of friends, and, you know, they passed around models, and they, you know, everybody knew each other. It was a very small world, but, you know, they were doing kind of, you know, remarkable things. Hmm. And so when you met him, he was in his 80s. He was 84. Yeah, I don't know. He was he was an old guy. He was old, but he was 
you know, he was like Dwayne Michaels, uh-huh. you know, he was just on and smart and sharp as could be. And, you know, you would go to his, this dark little hovel behind this, you know, house and, you know, he had amazing things. He would pull out albums and just show you, he would show you his tattoos. He would show you his pornography. I mean, he always had something. He was definitely worth visiting if you were in San Francisco. Uh-huh. Yeah, he was... I don't know. I guess if you think about great characters you've met in your life, he was certainly one. And uh, I ended up with his George Platt Lyons photographs. So that became the basis of your first book? Yes. Or your, your first, your first <clears throat> yeah, book no, of that was that really was. And then I met the other people in the East, on the East Coast, you know, Bernard Perlin, Paul Cadmus, everybody else who knew him. And I assembled a group of photographs that eventually became the book. And then... Um, Sam helped me write the introduction to the book, you know, because he was, you know, really smart and I couldn't write, but really wanted to, I felt like I should say something. And then, you know, we had pieces by Lincoln Kirsten and Glenway Westcott and other people. It sounds like a, as a, a genesis of a book, just a pretty amazing one. First of just discovering those, those pictures, you know, that Sam Stewart had and then going around to meet Platt Lines's, all of his models which that's how you that's how you uh, right. accumulated the pictures for the book, right? All and of his there models were, and had there pictures, were, and, and there were a number of them in L.A. Carlos McClendon and all these people. That, you know, they were still, you know, most of them were in their seventies and eighties. Yeah, and but they were <clears throat> they were you know happy to see someone who wanted to talk about you know that experience that part of their lives because nobody really had been completely forgotten. Right, and they would all pull out these albums with you know, with photographs in them. So at the time, no one, George Platt Lyons was kind of, he wasn't a, he was a forgotten character. Completely forgotten. There was absolutely no, that was, Dwayne was the only person who really knew anything about him that, uh, you know, I had encountered. Except for once you got into his circle of, of friends and models, I mean, you know, they were all sort of carrying the flame and very happy that somebody cared again mm-hmm. and that maybe something was going to happen. So I think for them it was almost exotic that somebody from another generation had sort of picked up this thing and was carrying it. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think I ever really thought about it like that. I just thought the photographs were remarkable and I think, you know, being gay in that period of time was, um, I think it, it was, there was a kind of renaissance. There was a whole series of like gay bookstores, you know, gay ghettos were kind of, you know, coming into fashion. West Hollywood was blossoming. But I wasn't really interested in, um, I didn't want the George Platt Lyons book to be really a part of that. I wanted it to be part of the rest of L.A. or the rest of New York. I didn't, I wanted the book to be kind of so beautiful and so unexpected that it would be in the window of the Rizzoli bookstore on Fifth Avenue in New York instead of a different light on Santa Monica Boulevard in West Hollywood. I mean, Mm -hmm. I also wanted it to be at a different light, but I wanted it to kind of transcend the ghetto. And, you know, there was a huge kind of renaissance in gay publishing at that point, but it was very, it wasn't being very well done and didn't, you know, really didn't have a lot of interest beyond the gay community. So the book, once it came up, yeah, well, the books that, you know, the art books that were being done, the photography books that were being done. But that was kind of also true, I think, with a lot, you know, 
lot of different kind of publish, kinds of publishing. So anyway, I just wanted to make this crazy book. And because I got the grant from the National Endowment for the Arts, I had the money to do it. So hmm. it was $25,000, I think. And then um, I did the best printing job I could. I found a printer out in Alhambra, you know, which is east of L.A., um, it turned out later on, I found out that they were the same printer who printed um, Ed Ruscha's books, mm. which I thought was, oh. And they did turn out to be remarkable. And there was like nobody in the country who could bind a hardcover 11 by 14 book. So I had to go use a yearbook bindery in Pomona to bind this book. So it was kind of cobbled together um, in as extraordinary a way as I could do it with, you know, not the best resources in the world. And um, so it came out, fine, I released it. I had 3,000 books in my living room because I printed 3,000 copies. I don't know why. I must have been a very optimistic person at that time. And 3,000 books in boxes is a lot of books. So <laughs> we kind of made furniture out of it. We made a couch. The bed, the mattresses were off the floor about five feet, you know, it was, it was all a little eccentric, but it, I think this is the way, later on looking back, I thought, well, this is the way publishing companies begin. Um, and uh, So what do you do with them? You have these, you have 3,000 books well, in boxes. Well, I, you know, that's where, you know, Andy Grunberg steps in. I had gone around New York to the different bookstores and um, taken it, and people were very impressed. It was really kind of like a book a lot of people hadn't really seen before because there was a, there was a photograph on the cover which was slightly confusing. There was no type, um, but it was arresting, and um, Rizzoli bought it, and a lot of the bookstores along Madison Avenue bought it. I basically was hand-selling it from bookstore to bookstore, and uh, then I think I came back to L.A. I mean, yeah, I came back to L.A. And um, I got a phone call from the New York Times. And uh, it was Andy Grumberg, who was the photography critic at the time. And uh, he said, um, I'm writing my year-end best books of the year column. And I saw your book. And would you send me a copy, please? And I said, um, Okay. And he said, here's, here's our FedEx. Here's the New York Times FedEx number, which I should have held on to. Um, so I FedExed it to New York, and it appeared in Andy's Best Books of the Year column. And all of a sudden, you know, it was just kind of craziness. I, all my furniture started to dissolve. <laughs> we sent box after box out. We sold you know, 3,000 copies of this book. And had to reprint it again and, you know, re ended up reprinting the book several times. But I, you know, when I finally met Andy years later, I told him I owed my entire career to him. And he was, he said, oh, no, no. I said, oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so were you do doing this all yourself at the time? Did you have anyone, anyone working for you? or No, it was pretty much, there wasn't anything that much to do. I mean, I got, once show. I had to pack and ship books, I mean, I had people helping me. Yeah. And I think it was kind of, everybody thought it was sort of crazy. But I remember at that time, a friend of mine saying, you know, this could really become something. And there was a gallery in New York, the Robert Miller Gallery. They agreed to uh, do a 
plot line show, and so that became a big deal. And uh, they gave a party, I think, afterwards. I think it was in New Jersey at the Johnson House. The Johnson family, I think, were the backers of the gallery. So this kind of extraordinary palatial hilltop uh, house in uh, New Jersey. They load us, loaded us all in, in, onto a school bus <laughs> in, like a Saturday afternoon, and we all went down there for this uh, event. And I was just wandering around. Um, I knew a few people, but not very many. And I was sitting by a window. I think I was looking out at the, you could see horses down in the through the rolling hills. It was kind of, you know, I guess I never thought of New Jersey looking that way. I was kind of impressed. And this guy comes up to me all in black leather. And I kind of look up. And um, I said, hello. And he said, hi. My name's Robert. I said, hello, Robert. And he said, I'm, I'm, I, think you, I think you know my work, Robert Mapletorp. I said, oh, yeah, I, yeah, I do, of course. And he sat down next to me and he said, oh, I, you know, I love the Platt Lyons book. It's really nice. And I said, uh, okay. <laughs> I wasn't sure what to say. He, the outfit was a little off-putting. I hadn't even noticed him on the bus. I'm not quite sure how I... Do you know if it was all it was all black leather? Yeah, he was he was wearing black leather. I don't know, like he had been at a party and just ran and made the bus at the last minute or something. But he was very soft spoken and <clears throat> asked me um, about publishing a book with him, you know, of his work. And I said, well, that could be interesting. I don't think at that point I'd really thought about what the where I would go after that. The George Platt Lyons book was so you know, all-consuming, and it really took a, two or three years to finally get the thing done. And um, so anyway, it, we ended up actually coming to some kind of agreement. He uh, wanted to do a book of his portraits, and I wanted to do a book of his um, pornography, X-rated images. But he was very um, concerned about his commercial um, career and being able to make money and to make a living. So he said, well, we could do a four-book deal, and you know, we'll do the portrait book first, and then we can do you know, some of the other stuff. And Why did you want to do that? Why did you want to do the X-rated stuff? I, I think I still had the, in my mind the whole kind of gay thing. I mean, I didn't want to be the ultimate gay publisher, but I felt like... I wanted to do a series of books that I think meant something and were important and drew attention to the gay community in a different way that I felt that, you know, a lot of what's been, what was being published was, you know, what it was doing or wasn't doing. I, you know, I don't really remember clearly thinking about it. I did like the idea of the X pictures because I, I liked the way people reacted to them and how they were offended by them. And I just thought that would be a more fun thing to do. <laughs> so it wasn't, so there was no apprehension or, or uh, nervousness. About no, publishing. I was, it, it was more excitement. No, I, my background and, you know, I was kept getting thrown out of high school because I was generally offensive. And so I had a lot of practice at it. And <laughs> That, that part of my life and I just felt like I was going to carry it out into the real world and that's really I think I was just being perverse but Robert as perverse as everyone thinks he was was a much more calculating person and he was thinking about his career and where it was going to go mm. and uh, so 
the certain people was going to be, you know, he wanted that to really be his first book. He had done a, pa- a little paperback book with uh, um, the female bodybuilder, I forget her name, Lisa Lyon, and it was really kind of trashy, and he was embarrassed by it, and I think he wanted to make up for that and really do something, you know, much more like the George Platt Lyons book. So, and he was ambitious. I mean, he really wanted, you know, to be um, a big deal in photography. So um, he he was sponsored by Sam Wagstaff at the time. Sam really helped him and gave him advice. And Sam was very smart and I think gave Robert a lot of good advice and Robert listened to him. And I think probably it was the two of them that finally decided that you know, the portrait book would be the best thing to do. Hmm. So, and he wanted Susan Sontag to write the text for it. So I had to track Susan down, who unfortunately was doing the worst thing that can happen to New Yorkers, which is changing apartments. <laughs> so it took, I think it took a year to finally get a piece out of her before we were able to... Uh, finished the book. The book was ready to go, and we were waiting um, for Susan's piece. Um, We finally got it. We got some help from some of her other friends, and they got her to finish it. Did she she like his work? Yeah. She was a fan? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think she liked him, and she liked the work. She was interested in it, and she was, at that time, she was always seemed like she was broke, so she definitely, you know, we paid her Mm -hmm. to do it. (laughs) So... You know, it was a job, and I, I think at that she was particularly unsettled at that time, and I think it had to do with the apartment. So, uh, hmm. but at the same time, I was working on that. I was doing Joel Peter Whitkin's book. Um, Joel had sort of, um, Joel lived in Albuquerque, and I had met him, and he wanted to do a book. So I began working on that, and I had also met Bruce Weber, and he wanted to do a book, so we began working on that. So I was sort of going back and forth between all three of these books. I think I'd made enough, I must have made enough money selling the George Platt Lyons book to imagine I could do all of these things. I don't really remember that much about money at the time. I mean, I seem to have more of it then than I ever had before, so. Um, so you had a bit of money to do books, and and you were kind of through the, through the lines book. You kind of uh, you became someone that people would come to. That you, you were you were a new publisher. You were someone who could publish their work. Oh, I, yeah. Well, and I think it was just the kind of book the, the, that that they sort wanted to of, do. Yeah. There was something a little over the top about the George Blatt Lines book that I think appealed to, like Bruce. I mean, he. You know, I think those artists could imagine their work in that format. Yeah. And, you know, being out in the world like that. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. 
So I want to ask you about the the form of your books because they they have a pretty uh, distinct signature to them. I mean, they're all very lush and beautiful and big and beautifully printed and that gravure. I mean, it's just gorgeous. Is that it, it, it was was the Maplethorpe book? Was that the first gravure book that you did? Those were the yeah. Those were the Maplethorpe and Bruce's book and the. Um, Joel's book was intended to be gravure, but the the Spanish threw us out of the country. We were trying to, um, I decided I wanted, I was a bibliophile, and a lot of the books that I really loved were the books from the 30s. And when I thought about photography books or picture books, the Leany Riefenstahl book I had seen for some reason um, in high school, somebody had a photography library, and I believe I saw that book and several other early books and they were all printed in gravure and I always remembered that look and when uh, I started publishing I just it, I wanted that look but I wasn't able to find it when I was working on the George Platt Lyons book and I started doing research after that book and uh, looking to see if there were actually any more gravure sheet-fed gravure publishers in the world printers in the world and um I found one in Switzerland. I found one in northern Spain. Um, for some reason, at that point, I didn't, re I didn't track down the Japanese. And so we ended up in northern Spain at, uh, in Bilbao. And it was the same printer who printed the Spanish currency. And we went there with the uh, 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 Robert Maplethorpe book and with Joel's book and with Bruce's book. Um, they, ref you know, it's a Catholic country. So as soon as they saw the Joel Peter Whitcomb book, they refused to print it. Hmm. And in fact, we were stopped, you know, by the military when we were trying to get into the country wow. because, um, they went through all the, they, those were the days when you printed, we had all the original prints. We had a box of, you know, a hundred Robert Maplethorpe photographs. We had a box of. Um, Bruce Weber prints, and we had a box of Joel's prints, and these were all original prints from the artist. So they seized the Witkin um, and then returned them to us in a few days. But we finally got to the printer, and the printer, when they saw the content of the Witkin, refused to do do those. But we did the other two books, and uh, we went. We heard there was a printer. Uh, we talked to the printer in Switzerland who, uh, the gravure printer, and they said they would do the Witkin book. So one of us flew there, and um, when they saw, actually saw the book, they refused to do it. And uh, then we found another offset printer in Switzerland and ended up printing the Witkin there. So we ended up doing all three. All three books were finally done, but the Witkin didn't end up being in gravure, which was unfortunate. How does gravure work? I wonder if you could just talk about the, the, the process and... Not actually sure what the ink is. Yeah. It's very viscous. It's very thick. And I think it has metals, heavy metals in it. So I think it's very toxic. And when you're printing with it, the smell is kind of off-putting, to say the least. So I think it's probably dangerous <laughs> and environmentally unsound. Mm -hmm. And it's basically the printing process is almost like a pressure process. The ink is in you know, so much ink is kind of almost slathered on the paper. It's, uh, it's, you use an uncoated paper so the ink actually soaks in, which gives the 
images a kind of depth and richness, but it's also very flat and has this kind of beautiful uh, non-sheen to it. It's, um, I don't know. To me, it's just, it's nostalgic because it reminds me really of those old books from the 20s and 30s. And to be able to recreate that, I thought was kind of remarkable, particularly with modern photographers and uh, Maplethorpe. And, but they, um, you know, they responded to it and they felt it was as close, you know, as close to their original work as anything that they could get in reproduction. So why doesn't it exist anymore? Why it's, it was just, it's just too expensive a process? Or? It's, well, it's an no. obsolete process and nobody, I tried to get other, I tried to get Aperture to do some books in gravure. I tried to interest other people. There wasn't enough business and the production guys didn't really understand what it was. They were all schooled in offset and understood offset and could do tritone and all of those processes but they didn't really understand how to work in in uh, gravure so they didn't and so basically and up until the last gravure printers shut down in about 2000 2001 so we did gravure printing up until then and then I remember they, our Japanese printer called us and said, uh, you know, we're, we're shutting down all the, we're shutting down the gravure building. The company in Kyoto actually had all the gravure in, in one building and they were all old printing presses from the 20s and 30s. So they oh. were kind of, it was kind of extraordinary. And That's the Nisha printing company? Nisha. Nisha. They were, the, they were printers to the emperor. I used to tell people, oh, we're using the printers to the emperor. I didn't even know if there was still an emperor. I think there was, or there is. And uh, so they called me, I remember, and said, we're shutting it down. And I just thought, that, I, to me, it was almost like I, it was like the end of the world. I thought, oh, damn. What I were you going to do? Yeah. I was going to shut, I was going to stop publishing. I thought, well, this is, this is the message, like stop publishing. And in the meantime, I reprinted at the, you know, I knew I had, um, they said, we can do, we're going to be open for six months, and if you want us to reprint any of the titles we've done for you, then I will, then we will do it. And so I had them do another printing of the Bruce Davidson's Brooklyn Gang, and another printing of Danny Lyons' Bike Riders, and another printing of the Disfarmer book. So mm -hmm. those were second editions of all of those books and those were the very and those were the last grivier books that i was able to do mm. i'm just thinking about the photo book climate at the time because now you know it's where we are in an age of um a lot of publishers a lot of photo books well, uh, there's there, a lot that exists now right there was nothing then there was nothing there then. was me there was aperture <laughs> i mean so if we talk about being a kind of distinction it wasn't hard to do because there wasn't really no one else out nobody nobody else was doing it yeah so there was some it was definitely i mean it was just weird because it existed in the first place there was no reason for someone to be doing that you know i mean certainly not business-wise and so the big publishers weren't didn't weren't really publishing photography except Ansel Adams, you know, or right. Avedon or something. You know, there just wasn't that kind of a market for it. And so, so, so business wise, it wasn't so. It, it was, it, it wasn't so good back then. Or oh no, it was incredible. Back it was. Then. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, <laughs> nobody knew that though, and I had no idea it was. Uh, but when I started publishing these books, no. 
my, I remember my accountant telling me like in 87 or 80, he said, you know, you're a millionaire now. I said, well, why am I broke? He said, <laughs> he said well, on paper, you're a millionaire. <laughs> he said, you've created this company and, you, you know, it's assets and this. And he tried to explain it to me. I said, don't even tell me. I'm still broke. <laughs> no, it was huge. And, but what also happened in that, like that 85 to 90 period is I attracted so much attention, you know, in the press and all kinds of things that it kind of alerted the big publishers that, oh, this is good. there's something going on here. And so... People got into photo... Like, pub- well, the big, the big photographers was like, oh, he's publishing Mapletorp pub- and he's doing these people. So all the big photographers, all, all the big publishers offered these photographers, you know, a lot of money to publish with them. So basically, you know, Robert got his four-book deal with, you know, I forget... You know, Random House or something, and Bruce got his deal with Knopf, and um, Herb Ritz got his deal with you know somebody else. So they all ended up getting offered these kind of six-figure contracts. Yeah, well, you know, they were going to all take you know the big publishers are going to take them away from this kid working out of his living room in L.A. <laughs> I mean, they were kind of pissed off that they'd sort of I got the jump on them somehow. So then the photography market, that was really the beginning of when the photography market started to take off, when all the big publishers got involved. But I was still doing, I was making weird choices, and I was still going my own way. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't publishing really commercial people. I was publishing sort of more eccentric choices and odder choices. How were you making your decisions on who to publish? I mean, were, did you have kind of pe- like, a, like a list of photographers that you wanted to do, or did it kind of just, did one thing lead to another? One thing kind of led to another. It wasn't yeah. really, you know, it was sort of people came, kind of came out of the woodwork, you know. Matt Mahern was at, um, you know, Art Center in Pasadena, and, you know, just said, came over to my house one day. You know, people would just, it was very kind of, there was a sort of casualness about it. It wasn't a business that so much is kind of the, you know, this kind of crazy thing that was going on. And I think a lot of artists enjoyed the idea of being part of it. But at the same time, because I was designing the books and they were getting a lot of attention, I was getting hired. All of a sudden I had a design career, like the Museum of Contemporary Art in L.A. when it opened. They hired me to do all their catalogs, design them. And so... How were you designing uh, back then? Like physically? I well, I got these art center kids, you know, who could do everything, and I told them what I wanted them to do. <laughs> it was I didn't know; I had no technical knowledge at all. I could tell how I knew how I wanted something to look. Mm-hmm. I remember doing a catalog for Ed Ruscha, and and um, I, I had met him a couple of times, and then I went to a party, and um, he came running up to me, and he's like, "Oh man, that." Jack, you know, that book you did for me, it was really nice. You know, thank you very much. I was like, oh my God, I'm getting a compliment <laughs> from Ed Ruscher. <laughs> it was just, you know, it, and I don't, nothing was planned. It was just, it just happened. You know, sometimes life happened. They talk about life happening to you or you people who take control of their lives. I think in a way I was sort of, passive because the things that were happening to me were so interesting I didn't really want to interfere with that so I I think I stayed really open to all sorts of things Hmm. and you know doing the things doing the work for the museums and letting I I think I probably would meet at that point I would meet anyone who wanted to see me and show me their work and and approach me about something 
Um, Did a lot of pe- a lot of people started to do that? And it was, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. There was yeah. definitely a you know, I mean, because a lot of people imagined having a, a book or having something like that. So it was definitely you know the beginning of that cycle. I don't think it's as crazy it is, as it is now. I mean, I think every other person in the world now imagines they could have a book. Then it was a little more rarefied. Um, People are still coming to you and sending you work. And, yes. Yeah. Con- yeah. Every yeah. day. Mm-hmm. Now, more than ever. Yeah. I'm always reprinting books, too. We're just, we're doing the eighth reprint of William Eggleston's um, Two and a Quarter. Hmm. I mean, I published that, I think, in 1998. So it's been like 20 years. And we're doing the 13th printing of Without Sanctuary. And, you know, we've sold over 100,000 copies of that book. You know, it's one of those books that keeps selling. And Bill's two and a quarter. I mean, I, we've probably sold thirty or 40,000 copies of that. I mean, the books keep selling. So we don't, you know, I think the publishing world now in photography, people, I see, a, you know, I, I read about a book that's come out and it says an edition of 300 or <laughs> edition of 1,000. You know, the market is constricted in a very strange way. And I'm not quite sure. And that was always something I never wanted to be a part of. The limited edition, special edition thing, I don't mind doing that on the side. But I always wanted to reach as many people as possible. I thought if I'm going to go to all the trouble, you know, to publish a book, I want, you know, thousands of copies out there. I want tens of thousands of copies if I can manage it. And I was able, you know, in the time that I began this and and, and was able to do it then, um, I was, it, it happened. Um, I don't know if I could reproduce it at this point. The bookstores are gone for the most part. Um, the, the structure of the business has completely changed. So I can't imagine recreating something like that in this environment. Did you always have a sense that as many people as possible were interested in photography, were interested in sophisticated photography, the stuff you're publishing? Uh, Well, you know, wanting to meet, reach a lot of people is, there's a certain conceit to that idea. (laughs) So whether I sort of rationalized it or whether I really, you know, thought about it, I, I don't, I figured it was worth a try. What was out there? I don't think I really knew. I don't think, you know, in the 80s, I don't think people really, the big publishers didn't know what was out there. When they saw me selling, you know, tens of thousands of books, it totally caught them off guard. Photography books, I don't think they thought that market was out there. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think they thought Herbert's or Bruce Weber could be like bestsellers. Right. You know, I, I think it was as much, as much a surprise to them as it was to me. And when, and then as soon as they realized, and I realized it just, you know, then the sky was the limit. It was like, you know, let's see what we're, we can go with this. Yeah. I want to ask you about how a couple, uh, a couple books came about. I'm curious about the Allen Ginsberg one. Allen Ginsberg. I had, um, a friend of mine, Raymond Foy, Raymond introduced me to Allen. That's how, so that's how Allen's book eventually happened. It took a while because Allen was... Alan wanted to do the definitive book. He was always, he, he wanted, I, I don't remember if he told me this at the time, but he wanted 108 pictures in it because I forget the religious significance of that. Something, but I ended up not 
putting 108 pictures in. So he was a little, that was his huge disappointment with the book. But <laughs> in the process of doing the book, he basically, you know, the captions and, you know, for him, it was a legacy book. It was the book about his photographs. And so the captions, every caption and under every picture was, you know, especially written for that book. So it took us two or three years to finally finish it and get it out. And, um, was he writing note? Was he, was he, um, using that language of his image and captions on the bottom before? Or was that developed for the, he, for the book? he had been, he'd been kind of working at it and, you know, he would write under photographs, but I think he really wanted to do, he was looking for the definitive caption you know, that was his obsession. And he, you know, he took his time. Alan didn't ever move very fast. But it was kind of, it ended up being you know, a pretty extraordinary book. And it was, he was a remarkable man to work with. And then I think a year or two later, I published a book of Gus Van Sant's portraits. And it was called 108 Portraits. And <laughs> Alan was just beside himself. Oh, said, my God. You, for Gus's book, you gave him 108 pictures, and you wouldn't give me 108 pictures? Why did you give him 108? <laughs> I probably because it, it was the, you know, it, Alan's disappointment resonated with me. And in trying to make it up to Alan, I sort of, you know, decided to do it through Gus somehow. I don't know. It was what, just a mess. Was it the same reference? No, it wasn't the same reference at all. It was that's why it was so bizarre that I would have done that, or maybe I was just torturing Alan. I don't remember what the <laughs> end game was in that. Hmm. So you worked closely with him on that edit. Well, he just there was so much stuff, you know, and I think he. I mean, he pretty much had when he started. He had really been editing for a long time. So I would have to say, I mean, I you know, it took two or three years. That's how when I was involved, but. I think he had really, at that point in his life, he was had edited the photographs down substantially and really was, you know, had kind of the essential images that he decided he was going to caption and mm -hmm. he was trying to get them all into the book. I mean, I think he'd, you know, I, he died a few years later after it came out. I mean, unexpectedly for all of us, but um, he seemed to have some sense of, you know, tying things up so uh, mm. but that book is you know i mean the thing one of the things i do is i keep try to keep books in print i mean as long as there's some demand for them i try to make them available so you know we have books in print we've had books in print for 20 or 30 years i mean the trouble with the gravure books is they can't be reprinted yeah there's not there you know we don't it's not possible and they become very expensive do you do you is that something, do you, do you like seeing that when your books become very expensive or rarefied objects or you prefer more, like, or is that um, philosophy of wanting as many people to have them, does, does that pervade? Well, I, I think it just because it becomes the past and I don't think, I think you just let that go and let it be whatever it happens to be. And if it, if it's expensive, then there's not really much you can do about it. I'm glad that I've hung on to you know, certain number of all of those books, <laughs> and you know, in a purely selfish way. But, but for me, you're you're always moving on to the next book. I I hardly look back. I yeah. think all, all, the only you know, if the if there's demand for the books and people care about them, I want to make them available. And I can't make all of them available. And you know, it's just I can't. You 
you don't you can't control the market you're really controlled by the market and um you just keep doing more books and they're all they're available to everybody for a certain period of time and people just have to realize it i mean i could ask you about there's so many there's so many how many books have you done there's so many I can't. I know people ask me that all the time. <laughs> just, I mean, how many books have you done? <laughs> um, you've talked a bit about what you're what you're up to now, but I guess I'm curious to know a bit more. I mean, I, you're working with Kevin Messina now. Um, Kevin, um, you know, he's been doing his press, Silas Finch, and I think he's the market and how strange it is and how almost non-existent it is. It's you know he can't. It's not viable, basically, mm-hmm. and he's realized that. And, <laughs> <laughs> and you know there's trouble when I become a poster child for viable. <laughs> so uh, he's kind of, you know, he's started talking to me about, you know, working with me and, and working with the press. And, you know, I haven't really worked with anyone in a long time, so it's kind of interesting. And we seem to get along. And we're working on a couple of projects together. I try not to talk about things I'm working on just because things fall apart all the time. <laughs> we're finishing. Really I'm, I'm just finishing up Gary Brickley's book. Um, he, I did his first book, I think, in, in, in uh, 2013. And then he wanted to apply for a Guggenheim in 2015. So he asked me to help him with that. And I put together a portfolio of color pictures. And he would, um, like every couple of weeks for the last four or five years, he would send me a packet of Walmart prints of photographs that he'd taken of the women he was seeing, their children, his kids, his own children, the neighborhood, Maine, where he lives, you know, just all very kind of personal. And there are a lot, you know, every, his life up there is kind of dramatic and very kind of suburban. I'm not quite sure. It's, it's not um, complacent at all. And so he seems to able to capture this in these weird prints. And so finally in 2015, when he wanted to apply for a Guggenheim, I said, Gary, you should, you know, I'll put together a, you know, a portfolio for your application out of these, all these Walmart prints you sent me. And, um, he said, you know, I, I, he actually goes along with things like, and he went along with that, which once I started editing like 2000 Walmart prints, you know, spread all over my floor. I was just like, Oh, I've really gotten into it. Anyway, I did it. He got the grant and I told him, I said, well, you know, you have to give me 15,000 of it so we can do the book. And so I just continued my edit. So we're just finishing that up now. So that's going to, That'll be coming out this fall. So that's the one book you can talk about that's it. coming out for sure. <laughs> the other four are all in varying, varying states of disarray and um, will be interesting if they do come out. But <laughs> <laughs> I just, just mentioning it now would be, I think, would just curse the whole process. I get it. I have the same kind of policy or superstition. No, I guess it is a kind of superstition. And things do go wrong and projects fall apart all the time. Uh, But uh, hopefully a couple of these will, we will be able to see them through. 
Well, it's been a real pleasure getting into all this history. I mean, I feel like we've only scratched the surface and there's there's just so much interesting stuff you've been involved with. I mean, I really appreciate you sharing a bit of it. Well, thank you for asking. <laughs> <laughs> I have no problem with asking. I people tell I think sometimes I'm just a little bit too inquisitive. <laughs> well, yeah. I I'm usually not the one to offer up anything. So if someone doesn't inquire, you know, it's not going to happen. <laughs> Thanks a lot for having me here. It's a, it's a treat. Well, it's nice having you here. That was my conversation with Jack Woody that we recorded in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Really hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did getting to sit down with Jack. This episode was produced by me, Jordan Weitzman, and was edited by Crystal Duhem. New theme music in this episode that we're really excited about is by Adam Feingold. If you enjoy the show, take a second give us a review on iTunes. It helps others discover the show, and we'd really appreciate it. To find out more about the show, visit us at magichourpodcast.org. Thanks for tuning in, and see you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.